Welcome to the Literacy Fellows Podcast. We have a special edition of the podcast today. It is hosted by some of the Literacy Fellows themselves, and they're going to be talking about some of the work that they've done for the free online literacy course that we've been offering this month uh, during the summer of 2020, looking ahead to the fall of 2020. To tell you a little bit more about that, here's another Literacy Fellow, Ryan Parker, to tell you a little bit more about the course that's online. We hope you enjoy. Imagine if you had the chance to tap into the wisdom of a group of educators who have over 150 years experience in teaching. Imagine if you had the chance to self-select a series of modules that could provide you with information and inspiration to uplift your soul and your pedagogy. Well, you don't need to imagine, because it's here. Hola, bienvenidos. Ciao. Marhaba. We're away from the walls of the classroom, but we have the most relevant pedagogy happening right now in this moment. I warn you, I warn you that a great portion of this world can't wait to get back to normal. Mm. And in the same breath, I warn you that normal has always been the enemy. All the links you need are in the show notes. And now, back to our show. Hi there. Thank you for joining our conversation and our professional learning community. My name is Jen Barone, and I'm joined by some of the greatest literacy minds in the state of Connecticut, actually, technically, the Northeast. Um, thank you for welcoming us into your home. Um, excuse the pets, the kids, the partners that may appear at random times. Um, Today we're here to do some thinking and examining around a central vision, mission, idea that brought us together as learners and professionals. Uh, whenever we start a new school year or an intervention group, adult learners or a new group of students in general, we always begin with getting to know you. Who is here with us in order to create student-driven instruction that's layered with choice, motivation, engagement, and intentional decision-making? and it's grounded by collaboration with colleagues. As a reading recovery trained teacher and a Glastonbury reading specialist working as an interventionist, I've seen the power of acceleration that can occur with this matchup. Last night I was at uh, the International Literacy Association's Early Reading Difficulties Seminar and Dr. Marjorie Lipson actually spoke to exactly this. She said, in this class with these students, what needs to be done? And when it's not intentionally and masterfully matched, everyone is anxious and frustrated and bored, teachers and students. We missed the mark. I have with me today Pamela Kairala, Michelle Horn, and Colleen Morello. Would you introduce yourselves, ladies? Hi, I'm Pamela Kairala. I have had the great privilege to work with all three of these ladies in different stages of my teaching career and really learned the power of collaboration, of transparency in teaching. Um, I, I taught the first graders um, for many years and I have to say my heart is always in that first grade classroom and seeing the magic of kids coming in as five-year-old kindergartners um, with uh, sometimes not those beginning reading skills and leaving as confident readers and writers. The magic of that is is always so important to me and in making that happen with students and families, um, it's always about really getting to know those kids, what 
makes them come alive, what makes them smile when they talk about it as writers, what charges them up as readers, the books that they pick up that they want so much to read, and then helping kids get, a, get there by making a path. Um, so I'm, I'm all about student-centered instruction and um, excited that um, these changes these last few months have brought it back to the forefront in a different way and thinking about how we can really get to know our kids and um, just getting every piece of teachable information out of every conversation, every observation, every reading and writing interaction that you have with kids. Hey, I'm up. Um, my name is Michelle Horn. I've been in education for 18 years in Madison, Connecticut. I started my career as a uh, third grade teacher for about 11 years. And then I got hired as the district literacy coach and I've been doing that work for the last um, seven years. And I have had the privilege of working with Pamela um, as a literacy coach uh, in Madison. Um, you know, I'm super excited about this opportunity and this course that we're offering at UConn. Um, I feel very passionate about exactly what uh, Pamela and Jen have already talked about, that student-centered um, instruction and getting to know students and building those relationships, figuring out who they are. Uh, most recently, I've had the opportunity to work with uh, middle school and high school students. And I think um, I'm, I've become very passionate about those older students and giving them the opportunity to use their voice, um, give them choice, allow them opportunities um, to kind of sit in that driver's seat and, and tell you what they um, I think is, is the heart of it. So I look forward to this opportunity to speak with all of you. And my name is Colleen Morello, and I am a language arts consultant in Fairfield Public Schools in Fairfield, Connecticut. I am excited to be working with all of these great three ladies that I have come to uh, meet and work with. My, um, I have a great job because it's twofold. I get to work with students and accelerate their reading when they're having difficulty, but then I also get to work with teachers. And I think when we talk about student-driven instruction, um, some of the best opportunities I've had to work with teachers have been around going in the classrooms and seeing what the kids are doing and where they lie on a progression or in a continuum and where we need to take them next so that they'll be successful and independent and not so much how do I help this teacher teach the curriculum. So really kind of, um, you know, when teachers come into the district, they're given a curriculum and they're given materials and resources and it's overwhelming and as the consultant in the building, I'm there to help them go through those materials, but when we can put all those aside and just go in and look at the class and look at what the kids are doing and talk about what first graders or second graders, whatever classroom I'm in, um, what they should be doing at that time and where they are and then helping the teacher get them to where they need to go next has been you know, some of the best work to be a part of. So this topic of student-driven instruction and why it is so important is um, at the heart of my coaching. I love how you said that, Colleen, that idea of like, where are you now? What's next? Where do I want you to be? And that simplified for the teachers really makes all the difference in the world because when we hand them stacks and stacks and stacks of resources, it's, that's just overwhelming. That's not helping anyone. And yeah. boy, has this allowed us to really do that. This crazy time has almost forced us to reimagine and rethink the way that we do everything. And, and we can't just you know, do it like we always have. Yeah. And what an, what an honor and a blessing to be part of that with colleagues like you, where we get to really examine the students in front of us and decide what do they need right now. 
Yeah, I think a really important thing too that we you know when we talk about curriculum and resources, I always say the people that wrote this took every kind of student into account so that you can use their resources and materials and prompts and, and whatever you have, um, you can find something that meets your student needs. But if you look at all those materials without those kids in mind, it's, it's too much, but that's, that's what it's there for. But being able to pick and choose what you need is what I think where the teachers, you know, need the help. I think that's such an important piece. Uh, I, I had the opportunity to work as a literacy coach and write curriculum um, with all three of these ladies and also then was in a central office role where we developed curriculum and units of study and sometimes criteria for things. And it does always come back to, despite what looks like so many rules, um, making sure that teachers feel empowered to look at their students, to develop their professional capacity and enthusiasm for getting to know those kids and matching their curricular decisions to the kids in the room to make it work and to make it come alive. And what we just said is our heart and soul and it actually came through in um, UConn's free literacy course. It's running live right now. It's called Literacy, Learning, Engagement and Inclusivity in Uncertain Times. Pamela and I co-created one of the modules. It's called Assessment for Acceleration, Assess Without Tears to Leverage What Matters Most. Pamela, can you share what participants can expect? Yeah, so as teachers right now, especially right now, time is not our friend. Um, and we need to use every minute wisely. So Jen and I try to, to demonstrate and show how you can use some simple tools to organize and gather as you interview students, small groups of students, individual students, and look for patterns across your classroom just to develop some instruction. And we'll show you how to do that through a conference, through some teaching, um, and through the data that we collect, how we uh, then tailor our instruction. We're also going to take you then, once you have your information, you know your students, your readers and writers, how you can make some moves to accelerate learning, to think about all that you can do with your really specific teaching language and to give kids feedback and opportunities for uh, practice with continual feedback loops and then thinking about how you can zoom in and zoom out to clarify your instructions for students. And our course actually branches to primary and secondary. So Colleen, can you talk a little bit about the primary lens of exactly that? Sure, so my module is um, on emergent writers and it's basically broken up into three sections. It's for the early K-1 teachers, um, but the first part really talks about that um, progression or continuum of our emergent writers and really finding um, in their samples and in what their behaviors and they're doing, where they lie and then what would naturally come next. Um, we think it's so important for our emergent writers to feel a sense of independence and build independence and have risk taking. And they really can only do that in the kind of environment where we're giving them things that they're ready for. So the first part of my module really talks about how we use our observations and our samples and things that we can do in the classroom virtually or in brick and mortar um, to see where they're at and see that next spot. I kind of, I think I called it the sweet spot um, for emergent writers. And then I talk about the, um, the balanced literacy model of interactive writing and really talking about using that opportunity to really build that risk taking and that independence because it's kind of the perfect blend of guided modeling guided practice and then letting the kids try it out and how 
Um, it incorporates all of that in a really safe environment and builds that independence. It's also an easy way to kind of target your instruction. So seeing what this group of kids, you can use that model to really pinpoint your instruction and differentiate even in a type of whole class setting. Um, and then the last part really talks about the stakeholders and how to get them kind of on board. I think the one thing that we've realized um, through distance learning is that um, the habits that we want students to create take time to build, but man, they don't take a lot of time to break. So really helping parents and caregivers and anybody that's reaching out for help, especially in these uncertain times, you know, really helping them and empowering them to continue to build that independence and risk-taking in their kids. So I'm sure you heard the connection there between Pamela and Colleen with the gradual release, the idea that we want students to be independent. Michelle, can you talk a little bit about our upper age kiddos? I can. Um, so my course is titled Engaging and Empowering Adolescent Learners with Action-Oriented Literacy. Uh, my my um, course is also made up of three parts, like Colleen's. The first part is really um, building those relationships with students through discussion strategies. So I talk a lot about you know various discussion strategies are, that are available for teachers um, where we're listening into kids and really, really trying to get to know them first, um, getting to know them as learners, what their learning style is. Um, and then we move on to part two where um, I'm hoping that through the interview with Kate Roberts, which was exciting, and she gave many tools and teaching moves to get our students' conversation kind of moving forward with the whole idea, again, of just really truly getting to know the student in front of us. And um, part three is after we've gotten to know our students, which it is so, so important to do that, especially in the times that we're in right now, um, regardless if we're in these times or not, it's super important. But that last part of the course is really, now that we know our students, um, how do we support them in taking action in the classroom, especially our middle school and high school students. What can we do to kind of move them forward? How can we help them develop an action plan, things that they're passionate about, community projects? So we explore some, um, I guess, tools to really move them forward in that process. So it is, it's, just, it's very exciting to think that we can get our own students to do their, their own thing. That actually brings me to the idea of what are we being required to do? So at least three of us are thinking about Connecticut State's reopening plan. I'm gonna share my screen now, but if you're just listening, I'll sort of explain what we're looking at. So the plan is called Adapt, Advance, Achieve. It's Connecticut's idea for how our instruction should kind of go. And some of the highlights are before you meet your class this year, review available information, think about what you already know in terms of assessment, plan the first unit, have some supporting professional learning, ensure that students have a high probability of success, teachers need professional learning on topics like assessment, formative assessment, differentiated instruction, progressions. Then we start the school year and you build your community with your new class. Your first unit should have differentiated instruction, use formative assessment practices and embed tier two supports. And there's, there's this idea to like, let's quickly get kids onto grade level, accelerate their learning in the first two to three weeks. And, and there's this like life cycle-esque graphic and it says, use diagnostic assessments, identify strengths and weaknesses, then differentiate instruction, use ongoing formative assessment practices, offer supports, and then continue. And um, I'm wondering what you ladies make of this because I gotta tell you, this is just kind of how I always think it should go. 
What do you think? I totally agree. Um, it, is, it kind of seems obvious, right? We need to always kind of assess our students to know where they're at and to know where to go next. I think the importance maybe coming out of it right now is we have so, um, so less than we're used to to rely back on. So, you know, we used to always talk in our district about why do we do certain assessments in June and then do them again in September? What do we expect has happened in that time? Let's do one or the other. And it always fell back on June because for whatever reason, you had to have kind of that end of year communication with the parent and filling out of information to pass on to the next teacher. So a lot of those, you know, early fall assessments, I know in, in my district and in some others, got pushed back a little bit later, like maybe October, November, when they are a little bit more comfortable and in their new environment, because don't worry, teachers, you have this, you know, end of year information. But so even though I totally agree with that and that it should always be the case, I think there's like a different, a different stance to it now because we're not really sure. So kids that we may have um, you know, known were not really engaged in the classroom at the end of the year or lost a little bit of footing over the summer. I think it's got a different take on it now, being that we've been in distance learning since March. I agree with that. I think um, you know, we want to rush right off the bat to maybe assess, and, and that's the, that feeling right away. We have to get to know them. And, um, but I, I do think my own district too, and, and what we've talked about is how are we really going to spend those first few weeks like we would want to anyway, um, really getting to know those students in front of us and recognizing that they have not been in school, some of them since March 13th. Um, what are some ways that we can do that even in a, a setting that may not feel um, like it has in the past, but what are the things that we can do to really make those kids feel comfortable um, enough that they'll open up to us and get to know them. And that could be uh, through just some simple conferencing and the thing that we, we love to do anyway as teachers, but not losing sight of that. Um, I know we've been out since March. I hope that we remember all those wonderful things that we've always done, even in these challenging times. You know, Pamela, it's reminding me of conversations that you and I have all the time where we sort of piggyback what counts as assessment and therefore what can we value to move forward because we don't have time to spend two months doing community building activities for no reason and we certainly don't want to sit a kid down the first time we meet them and slam them with diagnostics so how do we do it all right yeah i think it's about considering what you really value and need to know about students to make them feel comfortable and to begin to kind of pick the low-hanging fruit in terms of instruction off, right? How much is a little bit of rust or nervousness about being back in a classroom, whether that's a classroom physically or a new community of faces on the computer, right? So it's, it's about making kids feel comfortable right away by asking them questions about how they're doing, connecting kids. Oh, you have a dog? Johnny over there has a dog too. And he just told me the funniest story about his dog coming in and shaking all over the kitchen and the connections that that will make and get kids talking. And you can be observing all of this and writing it down, taking some notes, jotting, um, or you're probably going to have an awful lot on film these days. So thinking about how much that you can quickly go back. And again, remembering that time, time's really important, especially for our elementary teachers. They do so much. Um, and in the elementary grades, we are observing constantly, in addition to getting some written assessments. Um, 
and getting kids just to chew some books and read. So there's a lot going on for our, our uh, kinder, first grade, second, third grade teachers, um, thinking about everything that they're observing. And I think getting also the pulse of, you know, normally in the beginning of the school year, you have all the responsive classroom, getting to know your pieces going on. How do you do that in a digital world? How can the launch of a writing, writer's workshop go along with the stories that kids are sharing. Kids are going to have a lot of common over what has happened these last few months, um, even in just in terms of feelings that they've experienced and emotions. So those are all moments to watch. And I just, Jen and I always talk about the very quick assessment of giving kids the letters in their name and how much you can learn from, can you make two letter words? Can you make three letter words? Um, if you were going to add another letter, what words can you make? Can you make words with long vowels? Why? Why not? And just getting to know what kids know about words um, and also the power of a quick dictation um, to get you started with your kinders and first graders. Certainly your first graders. Some kinders will be ready for a dictation. A lot won't. Um, but just thinking about watching what kids do with a pen in their hand, with letters in their hands. So, you know, in saying that, Every opportunity to watch a child and make them feel comfortable is starting with assessment and giving you some ideas about where you're going to take your shared reading, your interactive writing, your read-alouds. Um, and that's getting started with a student-centered focus. I think you're spot on. I, I think it is possible to observe, gather that information in an organized way, and have it weigh as much as some of the diagnostic tools that we might use a little bit later that are more refined, but that we don't have to wait to plan instruction that matches the kids in front of us. And it's not intimidating for anyone. And from the kids' lens, it's fun. My teacher loves me, this is great. And from my lens, I have a few options of what I might do next and who might learn like you or with you on this topic. And that's sort of the goal. It's really important for us to remember our first interactions with kids stick. And we're telling a child, whether we intend to or not, what is most important. So if it's about how fast can you read this passage or this list of words, that is sending a message. Um, if it's about who are you as a reader and writer and what was the most special thing that happened to you, that tells the child, this person is really interested in me and who I am. And, you know, think about a new boss and whether they ask you how you're doing and how they can support you or if they ask you, did you look at the budget and are we on track yet? Um, makes a big difference to you in feeling comfortable in that new, new space. I'm thinking as you're speaking about, you know, our third through eighth or fourth through eighth graders, some of those middle schoolers, they come in with so much. They've been in school for so many years and we have to appreciate the fact that they have, a lot of them have a collection of work right on their Google Drive that we can be diving into alongside them and saying, you know, what were you up to last year? But show me your piece of narrative writing. Show me what you created. Um, helping them kind of goal set off the start or even spark a conversation of something that they've already done. I, I love that. And I think it's a nice way to just see where they left off and show them that, wow, you had all these skills. Now let's see what you can do today but um, piggybacking off of like work that they've already done, I think is really important and honoring the fact that they're capable. Um, we're not gonna go back a year. We're gonna work where you are now and move forward. I think is really important with the older kids, honoring where they are. 
kind of power. power of observation too, I think is what's we're all kind of leaning teachers towards, which, um, you know, when we don't want those formal assessments to at the beginning of the year, especially because of, you know, their social emotional well being and taking all that into account, but how much we can learn about them as readers and writers to what Pamela was saying with just some nice conversation and observations and, and ways to get to know them. I keep thinking about way back in the day when, you know, we used to have CN, the Connecticut mastery tests and you used to have to put your code for your name so that when teachers read them, they didn't know who's, who, what child it was. So you didn't have any of those like judgments as kids, as writers, like, oh, I know he's not going to give any detail or whatever you might think or say. The kind of the, I guess, the optimistic side of what I'm going to say of, of having the distance learning since March is that we're going to get kids in and we have to find out their strengths and what they need. And it's not going to be based on any kind of judgments from the teacher the year before or for what they were doing in June. Um, so that's kind of like a kind of a nice way to start it for the teachers, I think. It's kind of like a clean slate. Like, let me see where you are and where I can take you. Absolutely. And, you know, we're, we're talking a lot about how we don't honestly know what the fall is going to look like and that a lot of these options might look a little bit different, maybe virtually, but a lot of what we're saying still needs to happen regardless. Um, but when we think back to how the spring went, what were some of the surprises and opportunities that surfaced? I can start by saying, I'm, I'm like the optimistic one here, but I'm gonna start with a positive. I really found that the kids, it was more obvious in distance learning and in your live meetings to see who was unengaged and to find ways to bring them in, whether it was to talk about something you saw in their background that was hanging on their wall or a dog that walked by, but you found ways to engage them and it kind of stood out when you needed to. Where I think in the classroom when you have 20 kids on the rug in front of you and you're kind of honed in on your lesson and you've got it all planned and you're in front of the easel, you might miss those two or three kids on the rug that maybe are sitting still maybe look like they're listening but they are kind of unengaged i feel like in a lot of ways i in conversation with teachers they were really finding the kids that were unengaged more quickly and then finding ways to get them engaged i interviewed um, a panel of middle school students to, just to reflect on distance learning and i was pleasantly surprised by that piece of it of how many of them truly felt engaged i had a, i think a panel of maybe 13 kids that is part of my course um, that you can watch um, but I, I thought that they were you know interestingly enough they felt very positive about distance learning and so there's ways to do it but um, a big part of our conversation was on engagement uh, and I felt like they felt teachers cared enough that if they were unsure or unengaged that the teachers went out of their way and pulled them back in and um, again getting to know students is super important that relationship building so in all the chaos, I think there were some positives for sure. Um, I know, you know, my own middle schooler here at my house, he's, he really enjoyed some of the projects that he was given and he had his own little timeline. So he felt empowered. I know my course is a little bit about that empowerment of. I, I'm retired now. Um, I didn't see the day-to-day -day workings of what was going on. The thing that I noticed right away was the wonderful change in opportunity because the schedule was blown up for collaboration and for professional learning that you know we always talk about professional learning needs to meet the needs of the learner um, but in 
when you're planning for a district or a school or even a grade level, it's really hard to meet everyone's needs. Um, and this just, all of a sudden, teachers could collaborate and find the people they needed to collaborate with. Um, so many wonderful authors, institutions, um, consultants provided free professional learning and that kind of collaboration. And, and the other thing that I saw, something that as administrators we always worked on was trying to make teachers feel comfortable with transparency and having other teachers see them teach. Um, it just kind of happened because the camera became part of life. And so that wonderful opportunity for transparency and for collaboration is important. And I think, I hope that that is something that's able to continue, um, that different networks have formed. And I know the four of us have attended some webinars together and certainly watched a lot on our own. And the, the power and what we see happening in those chats on the professional learning forums um, and people making connections, you see it happening in front of you as you're watching. Um, so I think that is a wonderful thing and I really hope that it continues. And as far as um, just watching the kids that I'm lucky to have in my life, it, for them, one is an incredibly avid reader and it changed the way he read. Um, he, he could read as much as he wanted and it allowed him to develop some other interests as well. Um, and his, um, his sibling doesn't like to read so much and she was doing like, she called them passion projects, passion project after passion project with her dad kind of leading the way. And then that would be what they, they, they wrote about. Um, so those are the kind of things as kids come back and we use our power of observation, we don't really know all the instruction they may have had. We worry about the instruction they may not have had, but I think we have to be watchful for the experiences that parents provided and neighborhood kids provided and all of that and, and be looking for where kids really are as they come back to school. Yeah, we had a, a, a meeting recently with some teachers and talking about some goals for next year. And one of the positives that they had shared, which I thought was, it speaks to what Pamela just um, mentioned, is that, you know, we always used to try to give teachers release time in school to go visit another classroom and see a lesson or co-teach a lesson. And, you know, schedules are hard and coverage is hard, even harder. So we tried to let that, you know, happen as much as we could. But what virtual learning did was teachers kind of were able to pop into other classrooms or other meetings. They divided and conquered in the beginning, like, can you do some word work lessons and video them and I'll do some of this. And they really took off with, I love the way you taught that. I never did it that way. Can I borrow it? Can I use your video? Or I'm going to do it now myself that way. So I think we've with the, the release of the schedule to Pamela's point um, has given the opportunity for more of those what we call colleague visits um, to happen more easily and really see we had, we had one teacher that's worked with her grade partner for I want to say at least 15 years and she said this is the first time she really feels like she knows her as a teacher and I thought wow that's pretty unbelievable. Wow, and I would say, I, I can add to the opportunities. Um, I worked a lot with students one-on-one -on -one virtually. Um, students that were really struggling. Um, reading was not something they tended to enjoy. And I met with the families and I said, please join our lessons, listen in so you can hear how it goes and you can echo what you hear or more often than not what you don't hear me say or when I don't jump in. And I think it's one thing to tell parents you know, here are some things you can say when your child gets stuck, or here's a way you can help. 
But when they're sitting there watching you engage with their child and watching their child not cry when it's time to read and not put up a fight and get silly at the funny parts in the book and talk about it and be okay with productive struggle because they know you're not going to let them drown, but you're not going to save them if they don't need it. And then you sort of hear the parent start to layer in your talk over the next few days. And the parent, it, you become more of a triangle than has ever been possible before. Because I don't think parent conferences have ever gotten us to that point where you know distance learning as like a little triangle really has. So in the, in the instances where families have been able to do that with me, it's been groundbreaking for the relationship of reading at home, but also for that child's progress. Because, you know, unfortunately, things were not undone when it was time to read at home with whoever we were reading with. And, you know, speaking of families, what are some of the other ways that, that you are thinking about connecting and the role that families can play with goal setting and instruction and progress monitoring? I know one of the things we're thinking about in our district, and I know, Colleen, you did this in your district, is in what ways can we help um, families be involved in that learning if it ends up being distant, but even if it's not, and different webinars or little um, yeah. sessions that we can develop. I'd love to, you know, we're considering what is most important for parents to be able to be a collaborator in their child's education. And so I think strategically picking what's most important and trying to let uh, parents into that piece of it, um, whether it's reading, math, whatever it might be, um, helping helping parents with creating some live little lesson sessions, Zoom meetings, um, charts to help them. So I am interested in researching that a little bit more. I know our district is currently working on that. You know, I think it's a great opportunity for us as educators to kind of rethink what that would look like. Yeah, and I think in a lot of ways too, it 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 will it could even cause greater participation too. We used to always hold a literacy night um, for our you know, K2 parents at my school and we would design like mini workshops and the teachers were fabulous. They would volunteer and they would run just like a mini 15 minute workshop and the teachers, the parents could sign up for, uh, there could be like eight of them offered, but they could sign up for as many or as little as they wanted to and just kind of pop in and out of the rooms. But I feel like, you know, we always had a slew of parents that couldn't make it or, a babysitter or somebody got ill and they could make it and they would ask for the handouts you know anything that was given out could we make them like a little take-home kit and we always did but i think well you know offering it in a webinar or on a you know zoom meeting or even just something recorded you know asynchronous that they could go back and watch when needed you know if you're struggling with your child who won't write or you know is saying they can't do it you know we did a little bit of that in the beginning of distance learning from some parents saying, you know, they needed help. I think we could address those concerns in a kind of, you know, distance learning way that might even make it easier for parents to attend and pick and choose what is really applicable to their child, being that they're seeing it firsthand from home. And before the conference, right? I mean, like I always, as a parent, wanna hear from the teachers ahead of that. So I think it's an opportunity now that we can really create these little sessions for parents to help them with their child. So I think it could be really worthwhile. Great opportunity. So one end of it is families, but the other end is our administration. You know, we need a lot of support to make any of this possible. So when you think about student-driven instruction and professional collaboration, virtually or traditionally, 
what do we need from administration for this to be possible? Um, administrators, principals in particular, are under a lot of stress too. And things, um, things aren't happening um, because it's always what um, principals or administrators may feel is the best thing to be happening. Um, there are pressures, but having said that, I think it's really important. Um, I worked with an administrator at one point who said to me, you need to stop saying yes to everything. Your response when, when somebody comes and asks you to do one more thing is you have to say yes, but what do you want me not to do because I'm taking this on? And I think we have to be mindful of that piece of prioritizing what is most important. What changes in schedule made learning better and how can we accommodate that? Schedules drive a school. So thinking about how can we maintain the collaboration that just is starting between teachers within schools and across the country at this point, the way teachers are collaborating. So what can happen to give teachers that time and I think really looking at um, what, what do assessments mean and is that a place where some of them could go, some of them need to have a higher value, and how do we really use those to drive instruction as we try to bring um, instruction up to grade level as quickly as possible is what Connecticut's document talks about. How are we gonna get there? Um, can we accelerate instruction? Yes but can we do everything all the time? No. So I think working with your administrators as teams of teachers to problem solve, um, it's really easy for administrators to say yes when solutions are offered rather than just when the problem is dumped on them. So I think that's something for us to think about as teachers. Roundtable closing thoughts. Let's start mm -hmm. with you, Colleen. Oh, closing thoughts. Um, I think just, you know, support. I think we just need to kind of, um, I think, I, I try to think of it as we've gone over the worst of the hurdles, you know, whatever comes this fall, whether it's in the classroom, but with a lot of restrictions, or it's a blended model, or we're back at home with distance learning. I think we have learned so much as educators and things have grown so much between collaborating and um, working together. I feel like, I feel as positive as I can be in kind of a, in uncertain times that can be a little bit agonizing. I just, everybody keeps saying how much they've learned. I mean, even for me, I'm, you know, doing things I would have never thought I could have done back in March or the end of February. So I think just, um, you know, of course, making the kids feel good when we go back, but also making each other as educators feel good about the hurdles that we've gone through and, and how far we've come. And then just, you know, working with each other, I think, a lot of teachers have supported each other with technology and with resources you know everybody kind of put everything out on the table and, and shared you know difficult times sometimes bring out the best in people so i think even just celebrating that in these kind of difficult times is so important Michelle, I'll jump in. Yeah, um, I'm, you know, even on the days that it's feeling like, oh my goodness, during distance learning, I really have felt like this is a really interesting opportunity for educators to reimagine education and the way it's always been um, to kind of rethink whether it's collaboration, letting students take the lead. Um, 
I just, I, I want to remain positive even during these uncertain times because as a literacy coach, I feel like I witnessed teachers, um, you know, through distance learning that really showed their strength and their um, ability to get through all of this, became teacher leaders through it. Um, they had passions that maybe, you know, other people didn't have and they led us through these, these uncertain, uncharted waters. So I, I do think that this is an opportunity to kind of reimagine um, and I want to say, I, I think we all should remain positive because I do think some good things came out of this, even though it wasn't easy. So that's my, and you know, always keeping students at the forefront are kind of my final words. <laughs> mm -hmm. Nice, Pamela. I think that that is so important, keeping the students at the forefront. And in thinking about that, remembering how important it is that kids have their hands on books and that volume of reading matters, certainly. Um, direct instruction, phonics, phonological awareness, all of that is really important, but um, really making sure that kids and families know how to get books into kids' hands and that schools are doing all they can to get a variety of books replenished and changed so that kids have lots to think and read about and talk about. And then that social aspect of reading and writing. How can we make sure that kids are talking about their reading with their peers and talking about their writing with their peers as often as they can? And I would add on to that, not only students are talking about their reading and writing, but we are. As adult learners, um, we will be most successful when we find our family. And your family might be your grade level partner, might be in your district, or like I have found, my grade level family is all over the state or all over New England. Um, you find your people and you push each other. And we hope that you have gained something from this chat together. Thank you for, for joining us and for uh, coming into our homes. And we hope that you are revved and ready for the school year. And that's it for this chat. You can find our guest contact information by navigating from our website, reading.education.ucon.edu and clicking on podcast. We'll also have a transcript of this conversation and links to some of the tools and ideas mentioned here. Don't forget to like, subscribe, download, share, and check back here next week for a new series of podcasts from your UConn Literacy Fellows. Thanks for listening.